Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. One sheep for no reason than chasing a butterfly will run off and everyone else will think we're being chased. Let's go without thought. And they just do it. They're thoughtless, dumb sheep. And the Bible describes most people as being like sheep. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, in their disobedience, had been overtaken by both Assyria and Babylon and dispersed. As a result of their disobedience, did God turn his back on them, wash his hands of them? No. In fact, he promised to restore them to their pasture. What does God say to us in our disobedience? Tonight, Dr. Corbett is in Jeremiah chapter 50 and explores just that in his message, I will restore Israel to his pasture. Turn your Bibles, please, to Jeremiah chapter 50. And we're going to be looking at part 165 of our Jeremiah series. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are not just bodies. We are spiritual people who have spiritual ears, who have hearts that crave to be loved by you, hearts that yearn to love you in return, minds that are keen to be filled with exciting things that will help us to come to see and know you better. And Father, today I pray as we open your word, we would hear your voice, that you would speak to us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be looking from verses 17 down to verse 20. And just to give you a little bit of the background of where, where we're at now for those that are perhaps... Um, are not familiar with this context of the book of Jeremiah, 52 chapters in the book of Jeremiah, and we've been tracking through this for about the last six years. And we have seen that so many other parts of Scripture intersect with the book of Jeremiah, particularly the prophet Isaiah. I'm currently reading Isaiah at the moment as my devotional reading, and as I'm reading through Isaiah, I'm just aware, Isaiah who came before Jeremiah roughly about a hundred and something years, maybe 120, 130 years before Jeremiah. As I'm reading through there, and this morning I read through Isaiah uh, 50, 51, 52, 53, and that you come to that Isaiah 52, 53 passage, it's really, really difficult not to be moved by it because it talks about Jesus. And it, it talks about Jesus in such accurate detail that many atheists and sceptics who reject the Bible said that that, must have been, that that part of Isaiah must have been written around two or 300 AD. And then, of course, in 1948, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered where they discovered the scrolls of Isaiah, which had been preserved from around 300 BC. And they found, particularly this portion of Isaiah 52 and 53, which means it had to have been written before Jesus came. And it talks in so much detail about the life of Christ. But in there, the prophet Isaiah also talks about how God would one day restore Israel. And I know many people reading that today without understanding that God did, they, they have a future hope that maybe he'll do it again 
when Isaiah was actually thinking of something in particular, or should I say, God who was speaking through Isaiah was thinking of something in particular. But it's difficult not to read these passages in Isaiah, and as we'll see in a moment, Jeremiah, and as you can see, this section is called, I will restore Israel to his pasture. And that may not mean anything to you, but from a culture where sheep and shepherding and farming and, 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 and tending your flocks was, was a picture of peace and prosperity, this idea that you could put your flocks out somewhere for pasture, which most of us today we take for granted. But in those days where there was war and everything else going on, the threat of theft and all the rest of it, it was such a hostile environment to live. This, this was just so unheard of. And here God is saying, Israel will be to me like a flock just out in the pasture. It's a picture of peace. It's somewhat similar to the picture that God presents of himself in the book of Revelation, not, of, not that God the Father is described as a sheep, but his throne is described as being in the middle of the sea. But it's a sea described as smooth like glass. And again, if you miss the symbolism of how God speaks, and he's a beautiful artist with his words, this picture of a sea that's like glass is a picture of infinite, perfect peace. And as we worship God on Sundays, we come into the presence of this God who is peace, who wants us, his people, to be like sheep in his pasture. And for us as his sheep to, to worship and focus on him who is seated on the throne that is in the middle of a sea that is as smooth as glass. It's a picture of peace on our end and a picture of peace that he enjoys infinitely. And here God, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah in just a moment, is going to give this picture that one day my people will again enjoy peace and and in one sense we could look at what is happening in natural Israel and think well that's kind of not happening now and I'm going to suggest to you this has got very little to do with dirt as in physical land and it has got everything to do with what Jesus has done and what in particular not just the cross but the day of Pentecost Instigated, And we'll see that in a moment. So the background here is Jeremiah was prophesying from a very young age. He was called to be a prophet probably before the age of 12. And we see that from around about that time, he began to hear from God. Well, actually, initially, we see that he didn't hear from God initially. He saw from God because God asks him the question continually in chapters 1, 2 and 3. Jeremiah, what do you see? What do you see, Jeremiah? What do you see? And we miss it in, in English because in English we're not, we're not getting the double entendre nuance of the Hebrew language where, where God shows him something and, and, and he describes it. He, he says, I see an almond tree. And not knowing that the Hebrew word for almond is one letter off, another profound concept that God then says, that's right, I am going to, because it sounds like something else. And we miss that in the Hebrew. But initially, Jeremiah was visual. He was seeing something. And then as he grew up, as he came to know God, he stopped seeing and he began to hear and he began to hear very accurately. And we read of how Jeremiah from a young age, teenage years, would, would be in the, the, the midst of the city of Jerusalem declaring the word of the Lord. Profound, just amazing, a high price that he paid. And then as a young man from about the age of 20, when he, when he would have been ordained as a priest, we see, because he was the son of Hilkiah the priest, 
we see that God is continuing to speak through him. And the prophecies that he, he gave at the time seemed absurd and outrageous. And yet we can now look back because we're in chapter 50. And we can look back at over these prophecies that, he's gave, that he gave as a young man and all through his life. And here he is close to 70 years of age. And he's looking back. He's in Egypt where he did not want to be. He's been taken down with the, the survivors of Jerusalem whom he warned not to go down to Egypt, but to trust God and remain in the ruins of the city of Jerusalem, which the Babylonians have just destroyed. And here he is. And he turns his attentions to the surrounding nations of Israel. And here we are, Jeremiah, the prophet to the nation, prophesying. And we'll see the opening verse in this little section deals with two nations, the nation of Assyria and the nation of Babylon. The two former world empires, the one that was and the one that currently is and Jeremiah has something to say about them and if you don't understand that when Isaiah was prophesying some 130 to 150 years before Jeremiah the, the biggest threat then came from the Assyrians and in fact Assyria did come and surround Jerusalem and King Hezekiah you might recall went to the temple spread out the threatening letter from the king of Assyria and said oh God read their threats against us and we see that as Hezekiah, King Hezekiah was in that temple pleading with God for, for protection, that, that God awoke the Isaiah the prophet and came into the temple and said, it's okay, God has heard your prayer, he will deliver you. And it's an amazing rendering in the King James, which is one of the reasons why only people older than 400 years should actually be reading the King James today. It says this in the next verse. And when the Assyrians awoke, they discovered they were all dead. Just a good reason to read the English Standard Version because that doesn't make sense in English. 185,000 Assyrians died overnight as they turned on each other because God put a spirit of confusion among them and delivered Hezekiah. And so the Assyrians who tried to take Jerusalem weren't able to do it, but they took the ten tribes to the north and that was their end. And so it seemed like, and this is going to be an important part of what we're about to see here, is that the ten tribes to the north no longer had any identity. No longer would they be identified as, I'm from the tribe of Dan, or I'm from the tribe of Asher, or I'm, I'm this tribe or that tribe, because they were now scattered among the nations. It's called the dispersion or the diaspora. And they were no more. And here Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy is picked up by Jeremiah. And he says, God will one day again have one flock from all the tribes. And all the tribes will come. And they will once again feed like sheep on the hills and enjoy pasture. It's a beautiful picture of peace. So this is what God is saying. So that's a part of the background. Jeremiah is just months, maybe, from when he will be the unfortunate recipient of some of the prophecies that he's also given about what would happen to those Hebrews who had fled to Egypt, where he said, Babylon will track you down. Babylon will come and they will destroy Egypt and along, you along with it. And so Jeremiah himself perhaps had a glimpse of how he himself was going to perish and die. His secretary, Baruch, you can imagine, just hang on a minute, not too fast, Jeremiah, I'm just writing this down. We will be slaughtered among... Hey? And so in chapter 45, Jeremiah gets a word of the Lord for Baruch. It's a beautiful thing, beautiful. And he says, Baruch, you, you've wanted, you, you wanted many great things for yourself. And God's going to give you your life as your prize. And so Baruch would be spared. 
Oh, cancel that. Jeremiah will be slaughtered among them. <laughs> no, that's not in the text. That's just me reading into it. And so here we are. This is the background. We're going to pick it up at verse 17. Israel is hunted, is a hunted sheep, driven away by lions. First, the king of Assyria devoured him. And now at last, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. So again, this picture that the Assyrians attacked the, the ten northern tribes, all that's left are the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Next verse, verse 18. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, which is a military expression, by the way, whenever God identifies himself as the Lord of hosts, if you are in that mood to establish a war against God, you probably want to um, just have a little chill go through your spine whenever God addresses you as, I am the Lord of hosts. I am the commander in chief of the universe. Behold, I'm bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land as I punished the king of Assyria. Now, what we're about to read, and by the way, we've seen this happen, and this is detailed in the book of Daniel, where we see that the Babylonian Empire, exactly as Jeremiah's prophesied, would be in one night overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire. We read that in Daniel chapter 6. So exactly what was prophesied here did take place. And now we're going to read this interesting section. And I want to pause before we do, because for many of us, if not most of us, we are like, as the Bible describes, we are like sheep. We go along with the other sheep. And I mentioned uh, one of the other installments of Jeremiah that I was walking up our road and, and, and I live in what I consider to be paradise. Where I live, I dreamt of going for a holiday as a child. Where I live is just awesome. I get to live there. I'm sorry, I'm just, just reveling in, in the fact that we get to live here. This is awesome. I look out one way and I've got apple orchard. I look out the other way, there's vineyards over there. And in between, there's sheep. I've got sheep there and sheep there and sheep there and sheep there. We get to hear sheep at night. We get to walk past sheep during the day and they're sheep. And they're fascinatingly stupid creatures. They are amazingly dumb. And the Bible describes us as being sheep. You might just want to look at the person beside you and go, mm-hmm. And here's the thing about sheep. They will do whatever any other sheep is doing. That's pretty much it. One sheep, for no reason than chasing a butterfly, will run off and everyone else will think, we're being chased, let's go, without thought. And they just do it. They're thoughtless, dumb sheep. And the Bible describes most people as being like sheep. We do things because the pack does things. We do things because everyone else is doing things. Now, here's the thing spiritually. Because we're all like sheep, we all tend to do what everyone else is doing. And if Christianity is not cool, I'm not going to let people know that I'm a Christian. Well, if I do, I'm going to be really cool about it. However, that works. So what does it take to be a sheep who can think for themselves without becoming a goat? Someone's just obstinate. How do you become a sheep that's a leader of sheep? Because the one that we worship is not only the great shepherd, is he? He's not just the great shepherd. What did John the Baptist declare him to be? The Lamb of God. So the great shepherd, the leader, is also identified with us. He's a lamb. How can we have this leadership streak as sheep? It's actually, I think, very difficult. It's very difficult because we crave approval, don't we? We crave approval. Here, the, the, the point is just because the pack is doing it doesn't mean we as followers of Christ have to do it 
But can I tell you, I understand for a young person, that's really, really difficult. So here's, here's what I, I have come to know and I, I see in Scripture. And, and when I ask this question, I, I want you to think, what would it take for you to be in the midst of an evil and wicked generation for you not to become like that? There's the question. Just think about that question for a minute. And here's the possibility. Even in the midst of evil and wickedness, there are those who don't go along with the crowd. There are. And if you think in Scripture, as Ruby and I had a bit of a devotion this morning, and I asked her this question, Ruby, can you think of anyone in the Bible who was able to stand up for God when they were surrounded by people who didn't? And she said the first one I thought of too. Who, who comes to mind immediately? Help me out here. Daniel? Yeah, that was the first one that came to my mind as well. Who else? Noah? Great. Joseph? Multicoloured coat? Was, these people, thank you, these, these people were prepared not to be like everyone else when everyone else was not obeying God. So now I want you to think about this. What would it t- how would you be helped in the midst of an evil and wicked generation, an evil and wicked people? You're surrounded by people who are evil and wicked. Evil, they just do really bad things and they don't care. Wicked, they know it's wrong and they still do it. They're the ones to watch out for, by the way. So you're surrounded by people like this and you really want to really do what's right for God and by God. What's the best thing you can do? to help yourself in a context like that. So when we think about this, there, there are those people that we see in Scripture that even when all their, shall we say, friends, even family, did the wrong thing, they still did the right thing. And I'm just telling you straight up, that is not easy to do. That is hard to do. So those who remain faithful to God, even when all others who claim to know God are not, are known by God as... And here's the Bible word, the remnant. It means you can have a, a, a thousand people and there's five people in that crowd of a thousand who want to please God. And in God's eyes, those five people, they're the remnant. They're the ones I'm going to work with. And there's pictures of this all through the Bible. We think of Gideon who went down to the river with 30,000 men. 30,000 men. And God said, let's test them. Okay, let's test them. Let's go. What's the first test? See how they drink water. What? See how they drink water. And so, all right, everybody, down to the river and grab a drink. And you can imagine Gideon's confusion. I mean, what has drinking water got to do with going to war against the Midianites? And here's what he found. The ones that put their weapons down got down and went... God said, all those people, send them home. The ones that got down held their spear or their sword and did this and lapped like dogs, it says. They held their weapon and they stayed on guard and they drank. How many were left when that was the test? 300. 300 out of 30,000. 300. So we have this picture that just because you've got a vast crowd doesn't mean you've necessarily got what God sees. And can I, just, can I just say, kind of jump to one of the concluding things? There will be times when you feel all alone. Because what if you're one of the five among the thousand or the 300 among the 30,000? You're going to feel alone. 
But can I tell you from God's perspective, it looks very different. You're a part of the remnant. You're a part of the solution. It says in Isaiah, as I, as I was reading through Isaiah, this was what he said of, of exactly what Jeremiah is prophesying. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. Can I also say, perhaps you, you know you go along with the crowd. Perhaps you're a secret agent Christian. Perhaps there are times when you know that if Jesus Christ came around the corner and saw you and locked eyes with you, there are times when you wouldn't want that to happen. Can I say to you today, I'm not here to throw stones at you. I'm here to, to be like a shepherd coming into the city to find you as a stray lamb and to say, come on, come home. Jeremiah had already said this, then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. And in the New Testament, it describes being faithful to Christ as being a part of the remnant. So too, it says in Romans 11.5, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So we pick it up in verse 19 of the passage that we're looking at in Jeremiah 50. And this is how it continues. I will restore Israel to his pasture and he shall feed on Carmel, that's a mountain, and in Bashan. And his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead or Gilead. So Israel, that is the 12 tribes, are depicted as one flock, one flock of sheep who will graze on pasture. It's a, as I said, it's a picture of peace. We continue on in those days. And in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel and there shall be none. Hmm. And sin in Judah, and none shall be found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. What a beautiful picture of peace. A beautiful picture because if you do, and, 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 and I invite you to, but if you do get serious about really seeking God to really know his heart, to really come into fellowship and his presence, you may well experience what, Many have experienced, and it's an uncomfortable thing, where you become increasingly aware of your true condition before God. And it's, re it's really uncomfortable. And, and at, those, at that point, spiritually, you're really, really vulnerable if you back away from God. You need to keep pressing in to God. You need to keep opening up your heart and asking him to have his way in your life. Because if you do, you'll realize that he, because of what Christ has done, as we'll see in a moment, he's forgiven you. He's cleansed you. Doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how many times you've done it, doesn't matter who knows you've done it, doesn't matter who has seen you do it, Jesus forgives. And he does more than that. He cleanses. And as we see in this passage, he not only does that, he forgets. He forgets. So you can be praying to God, oh God, I've let you down. God, I've done things I shouldn't have done. I haven't done things I should have done. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And then a minute later, come back to God and say, God, remember those things I should have done? And God will quite honestly say, no, 
because they're forgiven and they're forgotten. Sin shall be sought in Israel and there shall be none. That's awesome. That's awesome. On the day of judgment, which for some of us may be less heartbeats away than for others, we will stand before God in full confidence that it's not us. It's because of what Christ has done that we will be forgiven. Can I tell you, this prophecy of God's forgiveness, this prophecy of God bringing together people to make them one, removing the dividing wall, it says in Ephesians, began to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. When there were representatives of all the 12 tribes there on the day of Pentecost, they came from all around the known world then, they heard the gospel and 3,000 of them turned to Christ, which is a very interesting number of people because on the day the law was given, 3,000 people died. But on the day the Holy Spirit was poured out in the new covenant, 3,000 people came alive. And that's the difference between the law and grace, what Jesus does. And this is what Jeremiah was seeing. There would come a day when Jesus would take Israel's guilt, Israel's shame and Israel's punishment on himself on the cross. And that's awesome. That's how Israel was to be united as one. But can I tell you also, Jesus Christ did more than just that. He didn't just die for Israel. He died for humanity. Whosoever will come to him can now know peace and forgiveness and cleansing and a brand new life so that their guilt and punishment on him can be taken by him on the cross. Now, in case you don't get it, let me dial this down even more. In case you don't identify with humanity, maybe you identify with this word, our. Because I'm not up here saying it's you and you're a sinner. I'm saying it's us. We're, we're sinners. We've blown it. We've fallen short. And thank God that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. Really? Really? Thank God that he did that. And in case that doesn't register with you, let me say the same thing for the third time in a different way. Jesus Christ took your guilt and your punishment, your shame on himself on the cross and the weight of your guilt, the weight of your shame and mine and everyone else who's ever lived was put on him on that cross. And now he extends to you the offer of forgiveness. It's an offer. Will you receive it? And here's how the New Testament puts it. If we confess our sins by simply saying, God, I have sinned. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But we're not just forgiven. We're cleansed from all unrighteousness. And we become clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which means on the day of judgment, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. And I'll tell you what, that's a relief. <laughs> that's a relief. And perhaps you've never surrendered your life to Christ. I'm going to invite you to do that now. And church, can I just say, if you get this, it's really, really hard to look out your front door, your across-the-road neighbour, and not wonder, have they received Christ? It's really difficult to look out your kitchen window, your next-door neighbour, and go, I wonder if that family has accepted Christ. It's really difficult to look out your driveway at your other neighbour and ask the same question. Maybe you don't have to ask the question. Maybe you know they haven't. It's really difficult to have a hard, cold heart that the fact that there are more people in this city who don't know God, don't know Christ, have not accepted his offer of forgiveness and cleansing and peace. And it actually should be a bit of a burden to us 
but perhaps you're here right now. And this, is, this moment's for you. Can we just pray? Holy Spirit, we've seen that Jeremiah foretold of a day that would come when rebellious Israel would be cleansed, healed and forgiven and reunited, brought together. And Father, the enemy wants to do exactly the opposite. He wants to scatter us, isolate us, inflict us with loneliness. He wants to make us feel out of place rather than in our place. The enemy wants to inflict guilt. The enemy wants to inflict shame. The enemy wants to numb us to spiritual truths of accountability. But today, oh God, you call us home. And you call us home with like a loving shepherd looking for lost sheep. And Father, there may be one or two lost sheep listening, watching right now. And I invite you, if you know that's you, you are one prayer away from discovering peace with God. A prayer that says, oh God, please forgive me. Come into my life and help me to live for you. You pray a prayer like that, your new life begins right now. And Father, for us as a church, I pray that our hearts would be enlarged to care more for more. As it turns out, God fulfills his promises through his gift of Jesus, even in our disobedience. How do you respond to this gift? Have you accepted that your guilt and punishment have been dealt with by Jesus? More from Dr. Corbett next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, I Will Restore Israel to His Pasture, are available via the website, findingtruthmatters.org, or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.